You're listening to a Dharma talk from Sunday Morning Zen, a program of the Zen Life and Meditation Center of Chicago. I'm delighted to be here. It's been, it seems like, you know, I, I see Diane, I see so many, Pam, my goodness. Um, and of course, I'd have to scroll through the pages to see people, but uh, I see some faces that I haven't seen for a while, and I am absolutely delighted to see you. And I'm glad I can be here this way. Uh, right now, I'm just happen to be standing in my office at Santa Sabina Center, where um, where we aren't hosting retreats right now. Just as you aren't you're doing everything online, and so we have been scrambling to find some ways to do some things on make online offerings. And fortunately, I arrived with uh, the gifts and skills to be able to help with that. So. Today we are in the midst of an online retreat weekend. We have uh, this woman, her name is uh, Kayleen, our presenter is Kayleen Asbo, and she is a, a specialist, well, that's not the right word, but she's an expert on uh, Dante, and she is doing a retreat on uh, the Divine Comedy, which is fascinating. So we have been going through uh, we've been going through hell. Yesterday we got through purgatory, purgatory and uh, arrived at the gates of heaven. I, so it's been really quite an interesting, um, I never read the Divine Comedy. So it's been enlightening for me to uh, learn a lot about Dante and about the Divine Comedy. Now uh, this talk, um, I wrote right not long before the election. So but you know what this is, and it's about being living in difficult times, basically, um, which we are living in. And although we might feel like we've got a little more certainty than we did a couple of weeks ago, we really don't. So, um, so I think it, this this topic of living with uncertainty is something we continue to need to um, approach in our lives. Now, surely many of us have heard that the saying, may you live in interesting times, is a Chinese curse or proverb. Now, while this may seem like a veiled curse, it is highly unlikely that its origin is China. It is much more likely that whoever first coined the expression desired to add some mystique to it and so attributed it to the Chinese. And living in these times, it called us to question how racism figures into our history our practices and our perspectives, might we wonder as to the motives of falsely attributing this quote to another race and culture, especially one that we have maligned so? Surely we haven't forgotten that COVID-19 was purposely called the Chinese virus and so encouraged hate crimes against persons of Asian ancestry. So right now we find ourselves in the midst of this global experience for which the expression interesting is rather benign as opposed to the turmoil in which we find ourselves. When speaking of COVID-19, racial, political, and economic turmoil and the unfolding of climate change, words like chaotic, devastating, and even terrifying may seem more fitting than the word interesting. Now, many wonder what more can happen in 2020. And to say that we feel unsettled and as if the ground beneath our feet is less than solid is the understatement. Now, truly, the ground is never as solid as we think. Molten lava in Hawaii comes to mind. And we in California who have experienced earthquakes know that terra firma is many times less than steady. 
So what is it that our spiritual traditions offer us in times like these? There is a Christian hymn that goes like this. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Now the tune and the tone of that song are triumphant and give the sense that if I plant my feet firmly on this rock, I won't be moved, ever. It is true that if your house is built on sand, it will collapse during an earthquake. We see that happen in San Francisco. Nonetheless, you don't want to have your feet firmly planted on a mountain of granite during a lightning storm. Neither should you hang on to the tallest tree, no matter how strong. Anything we cling to as absolutely reliable is not. There's a story that is told that Jesus said to Mary Magdalene as she sought him at the tomb after he had died, Noli me tangere, don't cling to me. Could this resurrected Jesus have meant don't cling to your limited and limiting image of me? So think about it. This Jesus had experienced a torturous death and is now standing before Mary in the power of resurrection, something that is beyond human concepts. So how could he possibly be the same as Mary remembered him? The Jesus that had been taken from her was not the same as the Christ who stood before her now. Of course, she wanted to be comforted and consoled after having her world turned upside down on Friday to have Jesus back as he had been before all of the chaos and ugliness would make it all better. But her teacher, her Rabboni, would have nothing, none of it. On this Sunday, it was time to learn that life was not the same and never would be again. Don't cling to me. I think this is similar to the advice of the Zen patriarch Linshi. If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. We yearn for a return to normalcy these days, and there is also a talk. There's much talk about the new normal. There's even an NPR program that began on March 30th called The New Normal. What if we never see a new normal? What if there never was normal in the first place? So I belong to a group called Sophia Sangha, named Sophia for the personification of wisdom. Now this particular Zen Buddhist community is composed of women, some of whom are Catholic nuns like myself. While everyone makes reference to a variety of texts from various tr traditions, including Christian ones, surely those of us that are in, 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 in embedded and part of a Christian tradition, we, can't, we don't leave those texts behind us. But in this Sangha, we study Buddhist ones. And as you do here at, Zen, at the Zen Center, we chant. And we often chant the Heart Sutra. And of course we chant it every time we gather, what we chant is the four vows at the ends of our, end of our meetings, as you also chant at the end of meditation. Now, I've been to several different Zen centers across the country, and, um, and I've, I've discovered that the words change, there's different translations. So now I'm not exactly sure if these are the exact words you use, but it's close enough. 
Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The awakened way is unsurpassable, I vow to embody it. So listen again to what is being promised here. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The awakened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. It is always a wonderment just how is it that anyone would have the nerve to make vows such as these, vows that would seem to be impossible. Paradox oxymorons, contradiction, our lives are full of them. And if we take a look at these vows, we will see that there is a contradiction in the vow between the first and second halves of each proclamation. So if beings are numberless, how on earth can we save them all? If we can never exhaust illusions, how on earth can we end them? If Dharma gates that open us to wisdom have no boundaries, where and how do we enter them? And if this way is beyond the beyond, how can that be attained? Paradox and contradiction. As you likely all know here, these vows are known as the Bodhisattva vows. And that a Bodhisattva is one who is willing to postpone her own enlightenment or in our Christian parlance, the beatific vision, heaven, in order to help others attain it. She knows that she cannot be free until everyone is free. It is a life lived for others. Is there a spiritual tradition that has stood the test of time that does not draw us out of ourselves, that does not value altruism, the setting aside of our own desires for the need of another, and are these four vows any more impossible or paradoxical than matrimonial or religious vows? Now, everyone knows what marriage vows are, but before I go any further, let me explain what I mean by religious vows. These are the vows that Catholics, sisters, nuns, brothers, and order priests make. Usually, they are vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Now there's a wide range of understanding and theological reflection about these vows, but this isn't the time or place for that conversation. The four Buddhist vows are made within the perspective or understanding that nothing is permanent, not even eternal bliss or punishment. So in our Western culture where the criminal justice system depends on retribution, which stems from a religious view that offers an eternal reward versus eternal damnation, one might wonder from that perspective why a person who neither believes in a deity nor considers anything to have any permanence would commit oneself to anything as demanding as these vows. In addition, when one takes these vows, she also vows to precepts that are very similar to the Ten Commandments. According to Dainan Katagiri, one of the prominent Zen masters who brought Zen from Japan to the US to vow is to aspire, to deeply wish for something that doesn't seem possible. 
He said, one makes the vow, even though it's impossible, because it comes from the deepest part of the self. Intellectually, it seems impossible, but from our deep life force, we can't help but say, yes, I will. Now, from both my personal experience and what I've witnessed of others who have taken the precepts in Jukai, this willingness to vow is often accompanied by the feeling that has surely arisen in all of us at some time when we want to say, I'm all in, or at least I want to be. When I made my vows as a Dominican sister, I used the words for the rest of my life. Now these four vows that we regularly repeat here don't like religious or marriage vows have an expiration date. But just because the Bodhisattva vows don't say until death doesn't mean that they're throwaway words and not meant to be kept. Rather, though they are known to be quite impossible, they are proclaimed to set the direction of one's life as well as that of each day. That might not seem as strong as saying until death, except when you consider that the intention is that this practice is meant to be endless, like emptying the ocean of water one teaspoon at a time. Fortunately, ours is a very forgiving practice and there's no beating oneself up over trips, falls or spills. The practice we enter into with these vows is to take one more step toward the infinite. It is one sometimes faltering step at a time. And perhaps that can help us develop a very special quality. And there's a word we don't use very much in the West, equanimity. Um, I think you'll get a sense of what that is from the short video clip. I used this once to illustrate equanimity in this group here before. It was a long time ago. So there's a few of you that may remember it, but let me see about sharing the screen here. See this uh, egret, I believe, on a boat. Okay. So it appears in this video that the egret is shifting left and right since the camera is mounted on the boat. So what is happening then is that the boat is pitching, but the egret is keeping herself perpendicular to the horizon, horizon line. She's staying while all about her moves equanimity. So you might say, I know what this is. This is balance, <laughs> but not exactly. We often think of balance as a goal to achieve, like the right amount of time with family, with work, with prayer, with play, with exercise. If I get these ratios right, I'll be in balance, like walking a tightrope. But equanimity is not about balancing the scales. Equanimity is that quality when everything in my life is out of balance and I'm losing my footing, I'm not also losing my heart. I would like to say that to live in interesting times like ours, to find a sense of balance of equanimity when the ground is shifting beneath us, this kind of intention is exactly what we need. And strangely enough, in order to do this, we need to let go of fixed outcomes of definite results. Now, I don't mean we don't make any plans and just let life happen to us. I used to tell junior high and high school students that if they make no plans, they're still responsible for whatever befalls them. Um, and they might end up with uh, nothing, no, make no plans, 
you get what you get, nothing. So, but be that as it may, we live our lives in the both and, the already and not yet. We live in paradox. And we don't like to live in the liminal land of paradox because it's not comfortable. So where is it promised that our lives should be comfortable? I'm reading a book by Stephen Batchelor and he says that we fail to realize that our lives are not necessary, but contingent, contingent and dependent on everyone and everything else. He writes, however tempting it is to invoke the hand of God, karma or destiny to inject a hidden order into what seems random, embracing contingency requires a willingness to accept the inexplicable and unpredictable instead of reaching for the anesthetic comfort of metaphysics. Comfort? I'm all for comfort. Now, you know, we all like to hang on to images that comfort us. So one that comes to mind is that of the Good Shepherd. Now that's an image that can be found in the Christian gospels as well in the Hebrew scriptures with the 23rd Psalm. I suggest there is a surprising paradox in the image that we would miss because of our cultural condition. And as a vegan, I find the image a bit off-putting. Surely the shepherd is a kindly custodian of the sheep and watches over them, chases after them when they get lost. For whom? To what end? Christianity is no stranger to paradox. Jesus offered the following. To gain your life, you need to lose it. To find rest under a yoke. To become great by becoming least. To triumph through death and defeat. Hmm. Maybe there's more underneath that image of us as sheep that he offered than we ever imagined. The shepherd leads the sheep to green pastures and still waters because what we gain over time through the wisdom of paradox is a deep trust that in what is ungraspable in the unbelievable. We discover that things are not what they seem and that the solid ground we believe in under our feet is not. Science teaches us this. Recently, science discovered that the origin of the universe, what Brian Swim calls the flaring forth, is expanding at an accelerating rate propelled by dark energy, an invisible force that can't be seen or measured in ordinary ways, but it is real. Ordinary observable matter like stars, planets, and us make up a measly 5% of the universe. The other 95% is made up of that dark energy, 68%, and, and dark matter, 27%. Almost all of ordinary matter, or 99.9999999% of it, is empty space. So if you took out all of the space in our atoms, the entire human race, all 7 billion of us, we would fit into the volume of a sugar cube. What does that do to your sense of self? So to recap, more than 95% of the universe is either dark energy or matter and therefore unknowable. And that knowable part is not solid, but full of empty space. Then what we understand is 
as space where nothing is, is actually full of energy. What is energy? Is energy solid? It's a mystery to be sure and not the solid stuff we think it is. We really are on just a small blue dot. I recall remarking to the owner of a tiny teacup poodle barking at a collie. Has anyone informed her of her size? That's us barking on a small blue dot. I think that Zen is the master in shaking our world with paradox. In a way, looking at this matter that appears to be solid within the knowledge that it is not actually solid is like a Zen koan, a story given to a student with the purpose to cause such mental consternation that a moment of awakening occurs. Some might call it an epiphany or an aha moment. The most well-known of these koans is, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And here at the Zen Center, you might, if you were doing uh, koan studies, start with the koan mu. And I, I hear that Robert is gonna be teaching on that. So, and this, the student might sit with this koan for days, for weeks, for months, even longer. And if you work with koans here in this tradition, you will become friends with that word mu. And often these epiphanies, ken shows, or aha, aha moments don't necessarily arrive when we're deep in prayer or contemplation, but when we're washing the dishes in the shower or in the line at the store. And when we have these moments, we may have a tendency to want to build a shrine around them because they're so wonderful. At the very least, we have a rock, a shell, a feather to remind us of that moment. Building memorials or memorializing treasured insights. We want something solid. Now, I'm not trivializing that because we do after all have bodies. I still have the whisk made of evergreen needles from my Jukai ceremony. Yet paradox provides for us an entryway into mystery, not to understand it, not to hang on to it, but to be awakened to a glimpse of something that is right in front of us and beyond our reach. These days we are experiencing change at a pace we've never experienced before. I mentioned that we will be helped on our journey by letting go of outcomes. In addition, on this spiritual journey of letting go, hanging on to treasured memories and spiritual experiences, no matter how profound, do not keep us in touch with what is true here and now. We must awaken to the fact that what we think is certain is not. We may think we know what is best, what is worst, even what is mediocre? We are so good at measuring, yet we know so little. The Buddhist approaches this with not knowing mind. There is a story that some of you have probably heard. It is called Seiwang's Horse. And it starts out like all true stories do with once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was a farmer called Seiwang. Sang Wang was a poor farmer and had only one horse, which he, was a, which, which he was dependent on for important work. One day his horse runs away. In the evening, his neighbor came over and said, I'm so sorry to hear about your horse. That must be dreadful for you. And the farmer said, I don't know if it's good or bad. We'll see. The neighbor looked confused. Obviously, it was an economic tragedy for the farmer. The next day, the horse comes back and brings with it six wild horses, 
In the evening, his neighbor came over and said, how wonderful to get this many new horses. It seems your fortune has changed. Isn't that great? And the farmer said, maybe, we'll see. Once again, the neighbor was dumbfounded. This must have been the best day of the farmer's life. The next day, the farmer's son tries to tame one of the wild horses. The horse throws the son off and he breaks his leg. In the evening, his neighbor came over and said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about your son. What a terrible accident. And the farmer said, who knows if it's good or bad? The, far the neighbor was now starting to question the sanity of the farmer. A few weeks later, the army comes by the town to recruit able-bodied young men for the ongoing war. With a broken leg, the farmer's son avoided being drafted. In the evening, his neighbor came over and said, how happy you must be that your son avoided the war. Isn't that fantastic? Unsurprisingly by now, the farmer said, it is what it is. As we look at our current situations, pandemic, global unrest, tyrannical governments, economic crises, political unrest, climate change, we are tempted to wring our hands and cry. We are doomed. But what are the words of the farmer? Who knows if it is good or bad? Actually, we limit ourselves by what we know because our knowing puts up walls that keeps out everything that disagrees with what we know. It blocks creative ideas. It closes our ears and eyes to the ideas and experiences of others. It gets stuck on closely guarded and comfortable ways of operating. There's a line from a Zen koan, not knowing is the most intimate. It may feel that as we step out into this not knowing that it is indeed a place of groundlessness, and indeed it is. At the same time, it is a place of freedom and possibility. There is another Zen koan, how do you step off the hundred foot pole? With this place of not knowing, it may feel that as we tentatively step off the pole out into this not knowing that it is a scary place, and indeed it is. I'm guessing that many of you have read Pema Chodron, but just listen to the titles of some of her books, the places that scare you, welcoming the unwelcome, the wisdom of no escape, comfortable with uncertainty. And just so that you know she's not all gloom and doom, one is living beautifully, of course, the part after the colon is with uncertainty and change. The place of not knowing that we are being invited to is a place of freedom and possibility. This brings me to one more Pema Chodron title, Taking the Leap. And in Taking the Leap, there's a story about a man while walking through the jungle stumbled upon a tiger. The man fled but came to the edge of a cliff. To save himself, he climbed down a vine, dangled over a fatal precipice. And while he hung there, two mice appeared from a hole in the cliff and began gnawing on the vine. Suddenly, he noticed a wild strawberry, red, plump, and inviting. He plucked it and popped it into his mouth. It was incredibly delicious. We are in being invited to a place of freedom and possibility. When we let go of outcomes, expect, expectations, and firm opinions, we also let go of a toxic hope that won't settle for anything more or less than that particular answer or outcome. 
is there an inviting wild strawberry before you? Now, I don't know if any of you are acquainted with Angelus Arian, who taught the fourfold way. First, she said, show up, choose to be present. That means being present to the uncomfortable moment without ignoring it, running away from it, or pushing it away. Second, pay attention to what has heart or meaning. And how can you do that without staying vulnerable and leaving your heart open? Am I willing to be shifted? Could it be different than I think it should be? Third, tell the truth without blame or judgment. This is the farmer simply saying it is what it is. And when I hear someone say it is what it is, I cringe just a little at the hackneyed phrase, but it is what it is. Nothing more, nothing less. And fourth, Arian said to be open to outcome, not attached to an outcome. This is the noli me tangere, the don't cling to me of Jesus to Mary Magdalene. Now we say we can't live without hope, yet often we are hanging on to something that is not really hope. And when we don't, and when we don't get our answers, we are hugely disappointed. Are we hanging on to a noun instead of moving with a verb? Vaclav Havel wrote, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. Our desired answers and hoped for outcomes are, oops, I just, um, hang on just a second here. I have a little, have a little kerfuffle. Um, Okay, uh, sorry. Um, hope is not something we can grasp or cling to when the tide rushes out uh, the sand beneath us. It's, it's like a vow. It is the direction in which we live our lives. Now for years, I have been inspired by the writings and life of Etta Hillison. Eddie was a young Jewish woman who was born in the Netherlands in 1914 and murdered in Auschwitz at the age of 29. And during the time that the Nazis were rounding up Jewish people to exterminate them, Eddie worked as a typist for the Jewish Council, a job that delayed her deportation to the transit camp at Westbork. Because of her work, she knew the truth about the Nazis' plan, the final solution. She knew what was happening in the camps. And not wishing to be spared the sufferings of her people, she eventually renounced her privileges and volunteered to accompany her fellow Jews to the camp in fact, she felt a deep calling to be present at the heart of the suffering, to become, as she said, the thinking heart of the concentration camp. This is the deep hope that directed Eddie's life. She wrote, there are moments when I feel like giving up or giving in, but I soon rally again and do my duty as I see it to keep the spark of life inside me ablaze. Now, if it weren't for the fact that her parents were not practicing Jews and that she hadn't been brought up with any real faith tradition, perhaps her grandmother would have taught her about Gamsul Tova, like the grandmother of my friend Sylvia Borstein. Gamsul Tova doesn't mean this painful situation is going to end up gratifying. Sometimes things get better, sometimes they get worse. Gamsul Tova means that creation is good, and the divine orderliness of creation is good, and everything is good, not for the good, just good. Somehow, 
Eddie learned this without the loving passing on of a Jewish faith by parents and grandparents. She was taught by something inside and could write in a letter despite everything. Life is full of beauty and meaning. Eddie, who has been called a mystic, experienced a sense of call to be in solidarity with those who suffer. Yet it wasn't a call to suffering as such. Hers was a vocation to redeem suffering of humanity from within by safeguarding, as she wrote, that little piece of you, God, in ourselves. Without knowing any Buddhist vows, she lived. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Her life reminds me of the words of Lawrence Freeman, a Benedictine, who founded uh, Christian Meditation in London with John Main, and he said, obedience is not doing what you're told, but becoming the word you hear. So do we give up any notion of outcomes altogether? If any of you have been teachers, you know that outcomes need to be part of a lesson plan. The teacher, hopefully, doesn't start a lesson without an idea of what she expects the students to learn from the lesson or what they will be able to do. And we get in a car and pull out of the driveway because we need to go to work, to the store, to visit a friend, when we still could. We can't operate without plans and expectations of outcomes. Perhaps you don't need a recipe when you cook, but you need at least to know, to have some idea of what will come out of a package of pasta, some garlic and tomatoes when you put them on the kitchen counter. So perhaps during this, these days, we can ask ourselves, what are some outcomes that we might want to consider letting go of? What expectations do I have that are not serving me or others? Does everything I do need to yield results? Then what do we put in the place of these tired outcomes? What vow or direction can we set for ourselves? Can we be willing to face uncertainty and stand in groundlessness? Can we embrace paradox, even if we can't understand it? And doing all of that, can we, as Eddie suggested, ultimately, we have just one more moral duty to reclaim large areas of peace in ourselves, more and more peace, and to reflect it toward others. And the more peace there is in us, the more peace there will also be in our troubled world. The Zen master Dogen wrote, listen to the raindrops at midnight. The raindrops have the power to pierce not only malice, malice oh, I'm not saying that well. Let me say it. The raindrops have the power to pierce not only moss, but also rock. So also of our practice. Our effort is like raindrops. It doesn't change one day. It doesn't change in one day, in a few days or in a few years. But if we just keep going and we keep doing it when the conditions are right, it happens. So I'm going to share with you another video uh, that I created. I think I need to, I'm going to stop that. I think I optimized. Hang on a second. I hope that the video comes through right because it doesn't say, I wasn't able to optimize screen share for the video clip, but we'll give it a try.
May I suggest, may I suggest to you, may I suggest this is the best part of your life. May I suggest this time is blessed for you. This time is blessed and shining almost blinding bright. Just turn your head and you'll begin to see the thousand reasons that were just beyond your sight. The reasons why, why I suggest to you why I suggest this is the best part of your life. There is a world that's been addressed to you, addressed to you, intended only for your eyes. A secret world, a treasure chest to you, of private scenes and brilliant dreams that Tender lover's smile, a tiny baby's hands, the million stars that fill the turning sky at night. Oh, I suggest, yes, I suggest to you, yes, I suggest this is the best part of your life. There is a hope. That's been expressed in you, the hope of seven generations, maybe more. This is the faith that they invest in you. It's that you'll do one better than was done before. Inside you know, and inside you understand. Inside you know what's yours to finally set right. And I suggest, and I suggest to you, and I suggest this is the best part of your life. This is a song, comes from the West to you. Comes from the west, comes from the slowly setting sun. This is a song with a request of you to see how very short the endless days will run. And when they're gone, and when the dark descends, we give anything for one more hour. Suggest this is the best part of your life. So, I'd like to suggest that it is the best part of our lives, what we are facing right now. And I'd like to share one more story with you. And before I do, I'd like to go back to an impossible vow. This is one that Catholic sisters, nuns, brothers, and priests take. It's a vow of obedience. 
a vowel which when uttered can cause an allergic reaction. It can start a little bit of mm. But the word in Latin means to listen from the Latin o audire. Perhaps it's a vowel that everyone should consider. Remember the words I quoted earlier of Lawrence Freeman, that obedience is not doing what you're told, but becoming the word you hear. And the story is a doll of salt. A doll of salt, after a long pilgrimage on dry land, came to the sea and discovered something she had never seen and could not possibly understand. She stood on firm ground, a solid little doll of salt, and saw that there was another ground that was mobile, insecure, noisy, strange, and unknown. She asked the sea, but what are you? And it said, I am the sea. And the doll said, what is the sea? To which the answer was, it is me. Then the doll said, I cannot understand, but I want to. How can I? The sea answered, touch me. So the doll shyly put forward a foot and touched the water and she got a strange impression that it was something that began to be knowable. She withdrew her leg and looked and saw that her toes were gone. And she was afraid and said, oh, but where is my toe? What have you done to me? And the sea said, you have given something in order to understand. Gradually, the water took away small bits of the doll's salt and the doll went farther and farther into the sea. And at every moment she had a sense of understanding more and more and yet of not being able to say what the sea was. As she went deeper, she melted more and more repeating but what is the sea? At last, a wave dissolved the rest of her and the doll said, it is I. She had discovered what the sea was, but not yet what water was. So may I suggest that not only that these interesting times are something that we need to face with courage and hope and fortitude, and all of those wonderful adverbs we can come up with, but that they are the best times. These are the best part of our lives. So let's go discover what water is and become the word we hear. Well, Pat, <clears throat> thank you. I don't know what time it is. Do you, I know that you are on a schedule. Do you have any time for questions? I, I do. I just need to quit at uh, 11 o'clock your time. Okay. You start up here an hour later and I need to get everything in place. Uh, thank you, Keiko, for such a beautiful talk. Once again, it's really nice to see you. Thank you, I wanted, I was so interested in that uh, obedience that you mentioned and that you said it's a deep listening, mm -hmm. a listening and becoming the word, is that right? Well, 
okay, so there were there were two things. There were ob audire. There's two words, two, which is in Latin, which means to listen. Ob audire. Audire. You can come up with audible. That's where we get those words from from ears. So it is to listen. And this Benedictine monk uh, suggested. I mean, you know, we study things like obedience because, like I said, we get an allergic reaction. Uh, went uh, to the word obedience because what are you going to ask me to do and do I have to give up some of my freedom, you know? So um, he is suggesting that it is becoming what we hear. I mean, so is there? It, uh, it's it's a it's becoming really listening, deeply listening, so that we can really become that. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you. Appreciate that. I have a question, a quick one. Uh, I wanted to uh, understand the spelling of Angelus, Angelus Arian. Um, it's A-N-G-E-L-E-S, and the last name is Arian, A-R-I-E-N. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your talk. Oh, you're welcome, Carol. Thank you. Glad you could be here. Glad I could be here. Hey, Pat, it's Steve Parker. Hi, Pat. Hi, Steve. You know, I just love the, the message about awakening to the possibilities, um, because there is so much drawn towards the, the sinking and the degeneration of society and culture. And, you know, the, the, your talk about awakening to the to uh, possibilities and creating um, the experience we would want to see in the world to start by creating it in ourselves. And I just uh, love the optimism and the possibility in your stories, uh, uh, the videos you had, and just weaving your wisdom with that of others. I just loved your talk and I just wanted to make sure I said hi. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much. You know, I've got to say that, you know, that story about Say Wang's horse. I tell you that I have been, if I'm clinging to anything, <laughs> you know, that story comes up for me over and over when I think this is the end of the world or when I hear this is the end of the world or when this is life or death and read a quote somewhere that said, um, the only thing that is life and death is life and death. Um, but we tend to label these things. And so I find this, that, that I don't know is one of the most freeing ways of being with news that I think is disastrous. Pat, I've been thinking a little bit about uh, Val since you talked about vow. And I think, um, I certainly vow. I take the, I, I repeat the four vows regularly, as you know. Um, I think there are a lot of people who vow many things and they don't take into consideration that everything changes. That even the vows we take, we need to be open to the possibility of not knowing and therefore bearing witness to what the vow that we've taken means and what else is happening. 
Any comment on that? Well, I think that um, you're. I think you're right on. I and I think that. Like, like I said, um, that you know our, the vows that we take. There's all kinds of interpretation and study that goes on uh, about how do we understand poverty, chastity, and obedience. I hardly live a life of poverty, you know. But what you know, um, and, and, I, and I would say that chastity is the easy part because I, you know, I live a I live a religious life and I don't have those. That, relationships that would move me in that direction. At uh, obedience, I don't know how well I listen, uh, but uh, I do think that things come up in people's lives that cause them to reconsider even lifetime vows that they may have made. I mean, I, how many people have made uh, lifetime commitments, you know, vows with expiration dates? Um, that they have had to change the expiration date because of circumstances that it's not, it's not just about selfishness and wanting what you want. I mean, it's about real life circumstances that people have to consider. And so I think that um, beings are numberless, I vow to say them, it's uh, to, to recall that this is an aspiration and a direction in which I set my life. Um, it's kind of like the mosquito that is trying to bite me. Well, I didn't save that one. <laughs> I, I may make choices about what I eat and don't eat, but bugs, I have a different feeling about that. <laughs> and I don't object to the center where I am that they come and spray. So, that, it's it's Ruth. Um, that was that was really interesting to me. The part about the vows, because I have never recited the vows when I am at the center, and uh, you know, since people started to do it at the end of the meditation, I've just never done it. I've never joined in because um, I just felt it was hypocritical. I thought there's no way in the world I can live those vows and so I'm not going to say that I'm going to because that's just really that's dishonest you know I can't do it and um now I might do it <laughs> now that I know I mean I just understand it in a whole different way understand you know uh with when you pointed out the paradox and that it's aspiring to something and um that's very helpful for me very helpful so I thank you Thanks, Ruth. Maybe you're ready to step off the 200-foot pole. Me. <laughs> oh, Pat, when did you when did you leave Chicagoland again? Sorry. When did you leave Chicagoland? Was it? I ended up leaving. It was the end of May. Oh, okay. Okay. I I ended up being in limbo for a couple okay. of months, but uh, yeah, I'm talking I arrived about here like I arrived here like the first of June, and then okay. I was in uh, quarantine for two weeks. And, yeah. I mean, it's good to see you again. I'm, I'm sad that it's because of a global pandemic, but it is what it is. Oh yeah, it is. <laughs> but you know what? One of the things that I have found about this is that, uh, you know, these Zoom gatherings, the the my, my the Zen Sangha that I gather with, that is in Wisconsin. Um, I mean, we're still meeting regularly, you know, and we've. It's actually in some ways created some bonds among us that are stronger 
than when we would gather once a month. And I find that people who, oh, I got to tell you the retreats that we do here at the center, my God, we've got people on this retreat this weekend that are from Australia, New Zealand, Ireland. Um, and there was something else where I've been with somebody from Portugal and, uh, you know, it is amazing where it, it, it is, it is our, our, our connections are growing. So, And I'm able to be with you this morning from California. So I think it's making lemonade, huh? <laughs> Are there any other questions, comments to Pat? So Pat, thank you so much. Take off, Pat, take off, Farrell. Thank you so much, my dear friend, our dear friend, your wisdom and your time and your heart, so much appreciated. Well, I'm grateful to be with you. I'm grateful to see so many of you again, and maybe, and I think there's some new friends here. Um, I'm not gonna name everybody I see, um, um, just know that I'm grateful to see you and, um, Blessings to you all. And I'm glad that everything is continuing well at Zen Center, at the Zen Center in Oak Park. So blessings. And great leadership, Michael. I've been seeing those, uh, uh, your regular posts. So that's great. Thank you. Thank okay. you, Pat. Great Take to care. see you. See you soon.